please, if you don't mind, to 1 John chapter 5. If you're wondering where the uh, where Dan's twin is, is that a good way to say it, Dan? Or Dan? Uh, Pastor Rick is with his family in Oklahoma. Their daughter Mary is finishing up her year of dance ministry there in Oklahoma, so they're there to see Mary's last performance, which I think was last night, and then go to church with her and then help her get all of her stuff back. So that's where they are today, so you can be remembering them and be incredibly... So, so let's just... I'll just tell you how Rick probably feels this morning. So I can say it because it isn't about me, okay? Um, Rick probably is wondering how things are going. He, I, I don't know that Rick ever takes vacation. We're going to make him take vacation now. Um, so he's probably wondering how things are going. Uh, he probably misses being with you. So let me implore you to, to do this. Reach out to him in the next 24 to 48 hours and tell him you missed him. Tell him the sermon was terrible. Okay? <laughs> That'll make him feel better. Um, tell him that everything went really poorly and, uh, and tell him you love him and how much you appreciate him. That will really encourage him. Not the sermon part, because that'll make me feel bad. But, um, but let him know that you missed him today, as I've been saying to you in recent weeks. It's really important that, we, that we're noticed. And, uh, and that would be a really encouraging thing for your pastor to let him know that you miss him and how much you appreciate him. Um, we in the West, we Judeo-Christian Westerners, we uh, are way more stoic than we would like to admit, and it's way more prevalent than is healthy for us. And so we, we tend to spare our words often because we don't think that they're important. Do not spare words of affirmation and grace. You do not know how hard a battle many are fighting, so bless your pastor who is away from us today. I'm going to read for us 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12, and then we're going to see a simple outline for today's passage. And, and my concern before I read these verses is that they're so commonplace with commonplace themes that we will run right by them and see them as non-essential. We have baseball games later today. We have lunch to get to, yard work perhaps to get to. And so it's easy for us whenever we see a passage, when we're faced with a passage that's familiar to us with with familiar themes to check out and say, I already know that. But what I want us to, to do today as we approach this passage is to not just see the truth of it, not just to not just to recognize and ascertain its truthfulness but to see goodness and beauty in these words. So that's going to be our challenge today, and may God's Spirit help us. So let us with attentive hearts, hopeful hearts, now approach God's Word. 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son." 
Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. May God bless our minds and hearts through the reading of his word. We're going to speak today about the good news of eternal life. We know that the word gospel means good news, a good word. And so today we will consider the the gospel of eternal life or the good news of eternal life. As I said to you a moment ago, because we trend toward stoicism as enlightened and very capable Westerners, and it's easy for us to run through these verses and say, Jesus Christ died for our sins. He offers us eternal life. And if we will trust him, we can participate in this eternal life. Got it. But it's quite possible in passing over it in such a cursory manner that, in fact, we, we may well miss the beauty of this text. The first thing I want us to see today in verses 6 through 8 is that our faith in Christ is grounded in truth. So I am in no way saying that we should not approach this text seeking to understand its truthfulness. In fact, in, in many ways, that's what John was doing. John was very concerned that, that these believers in and around Ephesus know the truth of the gospel. And it's interesting, as we've worked through this letter so far, we've now reached the, the end of the book, and we will be there in just a few short weeks as we finish this last chapter up, that John has been returning to this theme over and over again. Just for the sake of reminder, it is seemingly likely as we examine the evidence within the book that by this time, and this is probably the late 80s or early 90s AD, Jesus had already gone back to heaven like 60 years before that, so we're, we're six decades past the resurrection and ascension, that there had arisen bad doctrine. It doesn't take that long. And John seemingly was concerned with three major things, and one preeminently. The preeminent thing that John was concerned that these believers embrace is that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. And it's interesting that we've been covering that the past two weeks in our catechism. To secure our eternal redemption, Jesus had to be fully man obeying all the laws that we were called to keep but did not and could not. And then being a real man who could suffer in the place of sinners and die a bodily death and be raised with a real body. He was the second Adam, succeeding where the first Adam failed. This is why Romans chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15 are so important for our faith, for they point out that 
though the first Adam, a real human, sinned and therefore plunged the entire human race into enmity with God, brokenness before God, the second Adam came as a real human and succeeded where the first one failed. So John was concerned that that these believers embrace the full humanity of Jesus. And likewise, he was concerned that they embrace the full deity of Jesus, that he was fully God, that he was able in his fullness and his infinite nature to satisfy the wrath of God in our place. And that through his sacrifice as a real human and as a member of the Godhead, that God will accept us in him for his sacrifice counts for us in its fullness. And we need not fear that we have to buy God off. The God-man has satisfied the anger, the wrath of God, and now offers us his perfect infinite righteousness as the God-man. And by this point, six decades or so beyond Jesus' resurrection and ascension, there had arisen doctrine which brought this into question, that that somehow perhaps he wasn't really a human, that perhaps he wasn't really the second person of the Trinity. And John was concerned that these believers embrace the essence of the gospel, that the God-man died in our place, rose again, and offers us his righteousness. John was furthermore concerned that if if you get Jesus wrong, the person of Jesus wrong, then inevitably other dominoes start falling. Because if Jesus is not the one who reconciles us to God, and that somehow we contribute to it, that somehow we we buy God off, at, at least in part through our efforts, that it's a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of our righteousness then what that does is it it elevates, it it inflates our our sense of self-worth, and then we think we get to make up the rules. So what was going on here in Ephesus is they had, had these opponents of the gospel, had diminished or eclipsed the person of Jesus, and then had gotten to the point that they were making up their own rules. You you just get to do whatever you want because the Word of God, therefore, is not authoritative and standing over us anymore, and we get to, to make our own way. And so what had happened is... Not only had the doctrine of Christ been eclipsed, the need to obey God had been diminished, and then secondly, it had led to the point that they were so inflated with their sense of self-worth that they loved themselves and didn't love those around them. And so again and again and again, John keeps coming back to these themes. You must embrace Jesus as the God-man, the only one who can reconcile us to God. And that once you have accepted this, you will obey God and you will love those around you. So again and again, John has come back to these themes. And and here again in verses 6 through 12 of 1 John chapter 5, he returns to that, that primary theme. And so we see today that our faith in Christ is grounded in truth. John was concerned that the church and perhaps small churches in and around Ephesus embrace the truth of Christ. You notice here that he puts forward evidences or witnesses to the truthfulness of the gospel. This is grounded in the Old Testament law. Moses says in Deuteronomy 19, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. 
It became essential within Old Testament law that if a person was going to be convicted of a crime, there needed to be two, if not three witnesses that corroborated the evidence against the offender. And so what John is doing here as a good Jewish man is he's, he's putting forward witnesses, corroborating witnesses that agree with one another that Jesus Christ really is the God-man who took on flesh and came and offers us salvation. And the three witnesses that he puts forward are the water and the blood and the Spirit. And this may well be one of the most cryptic passages in the New Testament, and certainly the most cryptic in John's letter. What does he mean by these three things? Water, blood, and spirit. These are common religious metaphors, but within Christianity, they have particular acute significance. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to Matthew chapter 3. Now, remember here in 1 John 5, the text says that he came by water and blood, and that these three things evidence who he claimed to be. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, we read about the baptism of Jesus. Then Jesus came, Matthew says, from Galilee to the Jordan to John, this is John the Baptist, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased." Some scholars, a minority, but some scholars have put forward the idea that when John mentions that Jesus came by water, it refers to his physical birth. That's possible. But it is more likely that what John is referring to here in 1 John 5 is the baptism of Jesus. For at the baptism of Jesus, his public ministry commences. And you see Trinitarian dimensions here. The Father proclaims from heaven that this is His Son, to whom all the crowds that Jesus would preach and perform miracles in front of and then eventually die in front of, that they should listen to Him. Of course, the Spirit comes down and descends like a dove and rests on Jesus. And so here you have the full Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, at the commencement of Jesus' public ministry. And by this time, at least some of the disciples had come to be in Jesus' company. They would have been eyewitnesses to this, which John talks about at the beginning of 1 John. John and his friends, his companions, were eyewitnesses to Jesus' ministry. And so it is likely, and most scholars agree with this, that when John mentions that Jesus came by water, he is referencing Jesus' baptism, the the commencement of Jesus' public ministry. In John chapter 1, verses 29 through 30, John says, The next day he, this is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. We know this from Luke's gospel. He would have known him well. And though he was related to him by blood, he knew that Jesus came before him, even though that John the Baptist was older. He is speaking here of Jesus existing before his incarnation. Because he was fully God, he had no beginning. But he wasn't just some distant deity. He had come down and taken on human form, a real man, so that he could die for us like a lamb, atoning for the sins of the people. And so the baptism of Jesus was quite significant. For this is where Jesus is introduced publicly to all of Israel as the coming Messiah who will lay his life down for his people. But John does not just mention that Jesus came by water in 1 John chapter 5. He also came by blood. This probably is the other bookend to Jesus' public ministry. So the first bookend, the commencement, is Jesus' baptism, where God gives him this approval from heaven, hear my son, the one who will lay his life down for you. But the other bookend, of course, is Jesus' death and resurrection. People who saw Jesus die recognized him for who he was. In Mark chapter 15, Jesus utters a loud cry and breathed his last. His public ministry, for all intents and purposes, had come to an end. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The work was finished. God was reconciled to man. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. So at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, and then at the end, there was recognition of what he had come to be and what he had come to do. A real man, fully God at the same time, who came to rescue his people from their sin. And John, as an eyewitness, is saying to these people in these churches in Ephesus, you can trust the witnesses to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. After all, John could say, I was there. We saw these things. They are verifiable. So in Jesus' baptism and in his death, these things testify to his uniqueness as the God-man, as the atoner for sin. But John also mentions not just water and blood in 1 John 5, but the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And remember, this third person of the Trinity came down and rested on Jesus in the form of a dove at his baptism, but he will do more than that after Jesus' ascension back to heaven, for he is with us now. And Jesus prophesied this, for he says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And so Jesus' baptism speaks to his uniqueness. His death speaks to his uniqueness. And the third person of the Trinity has been granted, at least in large part, to convince us that Jesus really is the God-man who came to atone for our sins. So back to 1 John chapter 5, this Jesus came by water and blood, and not by water only, but by water and blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. 
So the Spirit reminds us of the truthfulness of Jesus. That is one of the reasons He has been gifted to us, to keep us in Christ. Not just initially believing, but to keep us believing. John goes on to say, as we've already read in verses 7 and 8, for there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. Notice he reverses the order there. The Spirit is first here in verse 8, and these three agree. The witnesses corroborate. Now, I do have to deal with one little textual thing, which may make this feel like a seminary class for just a moment, so I will only pause here briefly. If you have in front of you today a King James Version or a New King James Version, your verses 7 and 8 read like this. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Now, if you have more modern version in front of you, like the NIV or the ESV or the NASB, you'll notice that verse 7 is much longer. I'll read it again. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. That's longer than what most of you have in front of you. King James goes on to say in verse 8, there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. This is one of those places where some translations differ from one another. You can trust that the King James Bible is a good version to read. I grew up on the King James Bible. Most of the verses that I memorized in my head are still in Elizabethan English, right? Most of us are like that. Um, You can trust the King James and the New King James Bible. This is probably one place where they are a little bit off in what they included in the English translation. And the reason for that is in the oldest manuscripts that we have in Greek, of which there are thousands, most of them, especially the really early ones, do not have that longer reading that you find in the New King James and the King James. There was a a monk named Erasmus who was a great scholar, and in his original Greek edition of the New Testament, he did not include the longer readings of verses 7 and 8 because the church was so intent on preserving this Trinitarian doctrine, which is implied in the Bible, but there's no perfect verse that we can go to that perfectly spells it out, that the church had found some old Latin versions where that longer reading had shown up, and they thought it was a good defense of Trinitarianism. So under pressure in his later editions, Erasmus included the longer reading of verses 7 and 8, which then were the Greek manuscripts, basically, without getting too technical, out of which the King James was translated and then later the New King James. So, so what am I saying to you? Because I just probably lost half of you. I am saying to you that for those of you who have a longer reading in front of you today, it probably was not original. The first many centuries of the church do not have that reading in the Greek transcripts, the Greek manuscripts, or the early translations. It showed up later. This doesn't mean that you should just chuck your King James Bible or your new King James Bible, okay? It's it's a fine translation. Most of us grew up on it. But the longer reading is probably not original, and we should say that just because it's not original does not mean that the Bible does not uphold the doctrine of the Trinity, okay? We're not saying that either. And if I just lost half of you, see me afterward, and I will try to be a little less muddled as I explain it to you. But I don't want to skip things like that because if you heard me read a couple of times today and you thought, wait a minute, my Bible has more words here than he read, there is a reason for it. I will say, and this is actually relevant to what we are talking about today, that though we have many, many thousands of of Greek manuscripts, some of which go back to the, the early second century, 
that as we put them all together, they agree in 99 or 99.5% of all of, of their internal evidence with each other, which means that there is only a tiny minuscule of differences in our old uh, Greek manuscripts for the New Testament. And where the, those manuscripts differ from one another, the differences are only really, really minor. And this is one of those where it sometimes shows up. And so we use the majority of the text and we bring them together and we compare them with one another and we try to come to the best conclusion. And this is probably one of those places where some of the more modern translations actually have it right. So there you go. So as we walk away from this, what I do want to say to you is that our faith in Christ is grounded in truth. In verses 9 through 12, though, we, I think, get to the real heart of the passage, which is that Christ is the source and giver of eternal life. So we've seen truth. We've seen this issue of, of witnesses which corroborate one another in verses 6 through 8. But then I think John moves beyond that, not just to the result of embracing the truth, but to the beauty of embracing the truth. So, verses 6 through 8, our faith in Christ is grounded in truth. And verses 9 through 12, Christ is the source and giver of eternal life. This is the result of embracing the truth, and this is where we find life and beauty. Turn with me back, if you don't mind, to what Rich led us through a little while ago in John chapter 3, verses 13 through 21. In this text, the Lord Jesus says, verse 13, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And notice the result in verse 15, the purpose, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Why did Jesus die? To grant his people eternal life. And then perhaps the most well-known verse Thanks to football games in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, John 3.16, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So why did the eternal second person of the Trinity take on flesh? He came to this world as the God-man to offer us access to eternal life. Christ is the source and giver of eternal life. And that's John's argument back in 1 John chapter 5. In verse 9, he says, once again, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. So God was behind sending the Spirit who testifies to the person and work of Jesus. God was behind the commencement of Jesus' public ministry. We see that as baptism. God was behind the death of Jesus, which reconciles us to himself when that curtain was torn in two. So the testimony of God is at least these three things, the the gift of the Spirit, the commencement, and then the ending of Jesus' atoning work in his public ministry. So if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. It is like like the mind 
and the heart and the will of God are leveraged to draw attention to the person and work of Jesus for our good. So it's, it's like, maybe we could summarize it like this. It's like the power of God, love and, and, and wisdom and will, the power of God is leveraged toward the incarnation of Jesus. Why? To rescue us that we might have eternal life. Verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. So this power of God is, is like a spotlight. You've seen this perhaps if you've been to the theater. The stage goes dark and all of a sudden from the back of the hall, this, this spotlight shines and it's targeted on a particular actor. And it's, it's done so to draw attention to a particular part of the story or, or a narrative idea that this person has. And, and that's what Jesus was like. It was, it was like the spotlight of God was shown directly down on Jesus for all of his life, but particularly the three years of his public ministry, beginning with his baptism, ending in his death, so that people could look at him and say, oh, heaven has come to earth Grace and truth have come down from God. What he teaches and what he does and what he has accomplished, this is God's love to this world. God had every right to leave the world in the darkness, but he put his spotlight of powerful love on Jesus because he powerfully loves us. And if we embrace the testimony concerning Jesus, the truthfulness of the witness which corroborate one another concerning Jesus, look at verse 11. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. This life is in his son. In verse 12, whoever has the son has life. And whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. There, there were voices in and around Ephesus saying to these Ephesian believers, Jesus He's essential to your salvation, perhaps, which sounds pretty good. Essential is a good word. But there is a vast difference between the word essential and the word sufficient. And probably what was going on here in Ephesus is that these opponents of the gospel who had eclipsed the person and work of Jesus were saying to these Ephesian believers, yeah, Jesus, he, he's, he's essential to your salvation. But John is saying, no, he is sufficient for your salvation. He is sufficient for the gift of eternal life. And so again, the risk for us here, for those of us who've been Christians a long time, who, who whenever we see those yellow signs behind the goalposts at football games, and we see John 3.16 on that yellow sign, we know it by heart, of course, in the King James, that it's easy for us to say, well, here's another passage about eternal life. I'm good to go there. I know that stuff. But think about what John is saying here. First of all, if nothing else, he's, he's drawing a stark line. According to verse 12, he's saying there are some people in and around these churches who were getting it wrong, who were denying the sufficiency of Jesus to save. And what was their prospect? It was not eternal life. Tragically, it's the opposite, eternal separation from God or death. So if nothing else, John's doing that. He's drawing a stark line 
between life and death. But he's also doing more than that. He's encouraging these Ephesian believers to hang on to Jesus because of the gift that is theirs. And this was partially for the future. That's how we tend to think of eternal life. I will live forever somewhere. But it's already been received, at least to some degree. It's it's the already not yet. I will live with God forever because I have embraced His testimony concerning His Son. But in a sense, eternal life has already begun for me. Because of what happened in the garden, I was separated from God. I was born that way. But the moment that the Spirit gave me life and I trusted Jesus, everything began to change. I was no longer separated from God. Eternal life, at least in part, has commenced for me. One of the best commentaries, and I promise you I'm not going to sound like a seminarian again, but one of the best commentaries is written by a man named Richard Cruz on 1 John. And he had a really great section at the end of his comments on 1 John 5, 6 through 12 that I want to just put in front of you. So these are not original with me, but I think they are worth considering today. The first question that Cruz proposed is this, what does it mean to have eternal life? So what we're trying to do here is move beyond just the, the truthfulness, like the cognitive acceptance of it, and say, so what? What does it mean to have eternal life? Well, first of all, our spiritual hunger and thirst is now satisfied already. This is why Jesus can say to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman in John 4, everyone who drinks of this water from this well will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So we already embrace eternal life. We already have it. And one of the implications of this is that our spiritual hunger and thirst is satisfied. Jesus will go on to say in John 6, this is his bread of life discourse. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So so our deep existential hungering and thirsting, Jesus takes care of that. What else does it mean that we have eternal life? Secondly, we will be raised up on the last day and we will live forever. In John chapter 6, verse 40, the same bread of life discourse, he says to the crowds, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on that last day. My friends, cancer won't have the last word. Sudden death will not have the last word. God will because of Christ. Thirdly, we have the light of life, and we don't stumble around in the darkness anymore. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We don't have to fear the darkness anymore. Jesus has brought us light. Fourthly, we have abundant life. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. The opponents in Ephesus, that's what their message would lead to. Conversely, I, Jesus, came that they may have life and have it abundantly, not just in the hereafter, but in the here and now. And that probably doesn't mean Lamborghinis, right? 
but it means renewed fellowship with God. That which was ripped away from Adam and Eve in the garden is restored to us now. Vital union with our Creator. Next, we have intimate fellowship with the Father and the Son. In John chapter 17, verse 3, this beautiful prayer of Jesus, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We who were enemies of God have now been made sons and daughters. We who deserved to be relegated to the dungeon in the stocks have now been invited to the banquet table. This is the beauty of the gospel. Even if we die, we will live forever, which is why Jesus says when he raises Lazarus from the dead, I am the resurrection and the life Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Eternal life is partially about the hereafter, but it gives us hope in the here and now. And lastly, what are the evidences of eternal life? John has outlined several of them for us in his letter. First, we believe that Jesus is the Christ. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, Rick preached this to us a couple of weeks ago. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. What is one of the evidences that you have been born of God? You will speak of Jesus as the Christ. You will embrace Jesus as the Christ. This means that eternal life has been initiated in you here and here and now. Secondly, Not only do we believe that Jesus is the Christ when we have eternal life, we are able to fight sin and pursue righteousness. We have been transformed from who we were to new creatures in Christ, which is why John says in 1 John 2, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And then later in 1 John 3 verse 9 No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So whenever you are able to fight sin and pursue righteousness, this is evidence that eternal life has begun in you. Two more. We overcome the world, according to John. In 1 John 5, 4, John says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. We know the world is hostile to God's people. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. We don't have to fear what the world can do to us. Eternal life has been initiated in us. And then lastly, and there's great beauty in this, we, we love each other. John has come back to this again and again. He says in 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. What is one of the evidences that eternal life has begun in us? That we pass from from being at hostility with one another to being able to love one another, even when it's hard. It's easy to love people when there's no conflict. It's easy to love people when we agree with each other. It's a much different thing to love each other when we have conflict and we recognize the differences with one another. This is an important word for our newly merged church. One of the evidences that we embrace the good news of eternal life is that we will love each other even when it's hard. But don't be afraid. If eternal life has begun in you, you can do this. 
The Spirit who testifies to Jesus has taken up residence inside of you and will produce the fruit necessary to prove that God has given you eternal life through His Son. So, there is great truthfulness in this passage. Our faith in Christ is grounded in truth. But my friends, there is great beauty in this passage as well. For Christ is the source and giver of eternal life. We who formerly were desperate with no hope have been brought back to the eternal giver of all good things through the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the real God, fully human, who came and gave his life for us to make us new. So this passage proclaims to us the truth of Jesus and the beauty of Jesus. May the Lord instruct our minds, and may he transform our hearts. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, now for the glory of the Lord Jesus, the God-man, who came and took on flesh, who died in our place, and now offers us his righteousness, reconciling us to you. Take these truths and implant them deeply within our minds. And may they flow down into our hearts that we might embrace them by faith. Do this, we pray, that the Lord Jesus may be glorified. And do this, we pray, that we may have eternal hope. We pray these things in his name. Amen.